Surgical Society podcast. I'm Frank Davis, the president of the Surgical Society and host of this podcast. Throughout the year, I'm going to be talking to world-leading surgeons, incredible doctors with interesting passions, and the brightest and best medical students to help you score higher in your exams. Please follow our social media, cu underscore surgstock, and rate and download this podcast. But without further ado, let's get into today's episode. I'm delighted to be joined today by Professor John Barry, a consultant bariatric surgeon and director in Wales of the Royal College of Surgeons of England. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you very much for coming on today. No problem. So I'd like to start with your journey into into medicine. Journey into medicine? Well, that that goes back quite a long way, actually. I remember being in junior school in Cardiff and um, expressing an opinion that I'd like to be a doctor. I'm not absolutely sure why, but this was obviously in the... The, the late 1970s and early 80s. Um, so I clearly, through my secondary school, I clearly wanted to, to pursue medicine. So I, I did the sort of traditional sciences in school. <clears throat> I gained a place in the University of Wales College of Medicine. I started there in 1990, I believe, um, to the standard old-fashioned preclinical clinical course. And it was quite clear to me that having started on the wards back in, I think, 93, um, as a third year medical student, we were sent down, a group of us were sent to Cardiffall Infirmary, which is still in existence, although not functioning as, a, as an NHS hospital. And um, it's back in the days where we wore white coats, which is a bit of a, bit of a, um, uh, and not so much an undertaking, but it's seen as a bit of a badge of honour to be walking around a hospital ward wearing a white coat. And on the first day we were there, we were taken into a, a seminar room and in uh, walked this uh, consultant surgeon uh, who was Mr. Malcolm Wheeler at the time, uh, latterly Professor Malcolm Wheeler, who was a uh, rather eminent endocrine surgeon. And there were about 15 of us students, third year students in the room, and he talked for two hours and 45 minutes about surgery. Now, if you ever sit through a, a lecture of two hours and 45 minutes, you anticipate that you can be particularly bored. I wasn't bored in any shape or form. Um, he went through the generality of general surgery. I was completely blown away by what, what this entailed. So it was, I made that decision in my third year of medical school that I would pursue, uh, pursue a career in surgery. So having qualified, um, I started as a house officer in August of 96. First day on ward C7 West in the Royal Gwent Hospital. House officer to uh, a young consultant at the time, Mr. Brian Stevenson, who's uh, recently retired. Um, Mr. Stevenson was a general surgeon who specialised in colorectal surgery. Spent six months doing general surgery uh, and then my six-month job in in medicine and cardiology in University Hospital in Cardiff, during which time I applied for the basic surgical training scheme in Newport. At the time, this was a very well thought of training scheme. Uh, I was successful in my application and I started the Royal Gwent Hospital, back in the Royal Gwent Hospital, rotating through accident and emergency medicine, urology, uh, orthopedics. My first general surgical job with Mr. Wynne Lewis, as he, as he was then. Then uh, I did uh, six months in cardiac surgery in Cardiff, and then a further year in um, general surgery at the Gwent. And back in those days, um, it was pretty much mandated that in order to progress, you had to have some uh, form of research. So um, I was very fortunate. I became Mr. Wynne Lewis's inaugural research fellow in, I think, about 2000, 2001. Uh, and that, the, the, the thesis, my higher degree, my MCH, 
is uh, centred around gastric cancer, which is what Mr. Lewis's main interest was <clears throat> back in, 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 in the Gwent in the, in the 1990s. And it was during this time that I applied for the Higher Surgical Training Scheme. Uh, I was intent on pursuing a career in resectional esophageal gastric cancer. That was my interest, having worked with Wynne Lewis. Um, and I started my journey once again in UHW, spent six years going around various units in Wales, gaining quite significant experience in general surgery with a focus on esophagogastric um, cancer. But then it was um, quite late in my higher surgical training that I was um, a registrar in the unit I currently work. I was working for Professor John Baxter, who was Professor of Surgery in Swansea. And he was uh, one of the founding fathers, if, if you would, of the British Obesity Surgery Society, now called the British Obesity and Metabolic Surgery Society. And he was very much at the vanguard of uh, bariatric surgery in the United Kingdom. I had no experience of this type of surgery. And I had rather, not pejorative um, ideas about, you know, people with morbid obesity. But, you know, I didn't see why we were, you know, when we've got lots of, you know, looking at esophageal gastric cancer, um, why a surgeon would be so focused on operating on patients living with morbid obesity. And so I was rather, I wasn't dismissive in any shape or form. But then having worked with, with John Baxter, taking these patients who were severe complicated morbid obesity um, with a, you know the 240 conditions associated with morbid obesity how you can take them into an operating theater and over the course of a couple of hours you can um, do some form of gi surgery um, where the patients post-operatively are no longer diabetic hypertensive have sleep apnea and whatnot and this was a complete transformation for me and it was quite clear, having completed my job with John Baxter, <clears throat> that this this was this is where I was going to go. I was going to stop doing OG resections and pursue bariatric, or more correctly, to metabolic surgery. And so, about six months after that, I applied for a uh, fellowship. I did uh, fifteen months working in a high volume bariatric unit um, in just outside Liverpool in the Wirral with um, uh, Professor David Kerrigan. Uh, and after that, I was appointed to the surgical staff in Swansea. So I think I was appointed 2009 um, into Morrison Hospital as part of Swansea Bay University Health Board. And I've been there ever since. It sounds um, sort of very focused always on surgery. Did you ever have any doubts or any like tough sort of uh, years or, or months where you thought, I'm not sure whether I'm cut out for this role or I'm going to be able to do it? No, I never. It's a very good question, actually. I'm sure a lot of people challenge their... Um, thoughts about what career they go into but hand on heart I've never outside of you know when it's four o'clock in the morning and you're getting phoned to come into the hospital you know I'm in my early 50s now and it's a bit of a struggle but I've never questioned that I should have pursued a career in general surgery it's given me an awful lot you know it's it's I think medicine per se is is is, is the re rewards of medicine are, are, are difficult to define um, you know we're relatively well paid relative to, to most of the, the general population mm. and you know I, I, I've derived so much pleasure from um, doing surgery over the last whatever it is 25 years but I, I've never regretted going into it 
it is a particularly challenging job from time to time. Certainly when things are, aren't going correctly in theatre, despite there being, I don't know, 15, 20 people in the operating theatre, it's a very lonely place because everybody's looking to you to, to sort things out. But um, it's an extremely rewarding career, which is why I'm so keen to, to promote, you know, youngsters wanting to, to go into it. Sure, and, and talking of um, promoting it, the, the sort of surgical training pathways are sometimes being criticised for, for how like, intense it is. What, what would your sort of response to that be? Well, it is intense. I mean, something that happened during my training was that um, we had the European Working Time Directive, where prior to the EWTD coming in, uh, we were working quite considerable hours. And I remember my first... Uh, my first contract in the Royal Gwent Hospital as a house officer was 76 hours per week. Now, I didn't realise what 76 hours per week meant, um, save for the fact we were working quite a lot of you know, long hours. What I do remember very well about my time in Newport, it was very, very enjoyable. And certainly, I'd have job, done my job for free up until I was a registrar. That's when it became far more um how can I say, tasty. But, um, you know, we had, there was, there was a, because of the way the on-call structure was, I was also on-call with my team. Um, we had on-call rooms. It wasn't as busy for whatever reason. Um, these days, there's a there's a complexity of, of um, uh, form filling, um, electronic recording of, of data and whatnot. And so I, when I look at my uh, more junior colleagues, um, I think it is a pretty hard job, but the nature of the job has changed quite a lot. So, you know, I, I would still go into surgery, but it has changed. How so? It's just because I think there's a, there's a, lot, more, um, there's a lot more structure to it, which may be a good thing. But in terms of uh, logbooks, electronic logbooks, appraisals, revalidation, uh, mandatory courses that you, you, you obviously have to go on. Um, and it wasn't as rigid as that back in the day. It was more. Uh, it was more of a case of you would be on a hospital ward just before eight o'clock in the morning. You do your ward round. You did whatever you needed to do in the day, whether it be clinics operating, whether you were on call. You finished when you finished. It was none of. The, it wasn't a four o'clock. I'm off now. Mm-hmm. We stayed there until the job was done. But it was a, a particularly enjoyable time, mainly because I was I was very much part of a team. You know, when I was in work, I had my own SHO registrar and consultant. Because of the imposition of the um, working time directive, uh, colleagues are now limited to the number of hours they can work a week, and this makes rather disruptive on-call cycles. So if I'm on call, for example, I say, say I'm on call this weekend, I, don't, I won't necessarily be on call with my registrar, my SHO, my house officer. Um, and the great benefits of that type of work, and there was continuity of care. So if, my, if I was on call with my registrar, subsequent days and weeks my registrar would still know the the patients because they were the admitting registrar at the time so there has been some disruption with the the working time directive and well you've got through the training pathway now you're a consultant bariatric surgeon you talked before about how it was very new at the time Mm -hmm. and a lot of people I think still regard bariatric or metabolic surgery now as as maybe sort of like tummy tuck sort of yeah yeah what is can you go into what sort of metabolic and bariatric surgery really is sure i mean that's um public 
perception of um, metabolic surgery or bariatric surgery, they always refer to as weight loss surgery. And most people, if you ask them about weight loss surgery, they think this would be gastric banding. Mm -hmm. Okay, so gastric banding is still performed. Um, some units are around, uh, you know, there's some, still some ongoing trials about the effectiveness of gastric banding. I don't think it's, it's a particularly effective, durable um, procedure for patients with, with, with morbid obesity. We tend to favor in Swansea um, sleeve gastrectomies or gastric bypass operations because I think there's, there's, there's a, a far greater evidence behind how those types of operations work. But you know, I've already alluded to, you know, we have a big problem with morbid obesity in the United Kingdom. Seven out of the 10 worst areas of morbid obesity in the UK are in Wales. Um, morbid obesity is generally associated with social deprivation, something of which we're not short of uh, in the United Kingdom. But we know that there's about 240 conditions that are directly attributable to carrying too much weight. We generally focus on the patients who have metabolic syndrome. That would be type 2 diabetes, hypertension and sleep apnea, dyslipidemic blood profiles as well. But the fascinating thing about this type of these operations is that all of those comorbidities will improve by having an operation. Um, and it is quite staggering to put somebody on a liver reduction diet before an operation for a couple of weeks, bring them in, perform, whether it be a, a raw my gastric bypass or sleeve gastrectomy. And after the operation, for example, in type 2 diabetes, their blood sugars are normal. So you're switching off this sort of diabetic cascade yeah. within a, an hour and a half, two hours of an operation. It is quite staggering, which is why I decided back in whenever it was 2007 to pursue this this career and what do you say to the people who would be like look I don't really want my money that I'm you know giving to the NHS spent on bariatric surgery why can't you just tell them to you know eat less and exercise more very good question um, we what we know about um, dieting is there's very high degrees of recidivism. So we know that fewer than 3% of people who can lose any significant weight will maintain that beyond two years. So the old fashioned advice of eat less, exercise more doesn't really work. We know that there are strong economic drivers behind doing this type of surgery. We know that um, employment rates in the um, post bariatric surgical population mirror that of the non-obese population. So these people are getting back to work, they're in employment, they're paying taxes. We also know that these operations pay for themselves in about two and a half years. Um, you know, so we've got to have some durable solution to the problem that we have in the United Kingdom at the moment, because we have very, very high rates, particularly in, in, in children coming through. We know that about 12, 13% of uh, children in reception class are morbidly obese. Um, and this is, this is a societal problem and it isn't going away and we have to find some solution to it. Yeah, because you've described childhood obesity as a, as a ticking time bomb. Yeah. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, if you look back over the last 30 to 40 years, I mean, I've got photographs of my, my family from, you know, 1950s and 60s and whatnot, wedding photographs, whatever. You don't see anybody in those photographs living with morbid obesity. But what we've seen a quadrupling in the rates of morbid obesity in the last 30 years. Um, and all the uh, associated problems with being morbidly obese. We have uh, difficulty, particularly in, in, the, in the Western world where um, the food companies are, are very, um, how can I say, um, driven to get particularly youngsters to eat things like fast foods. These processed carbohydrates didn't exist 40 or 50 years ago. But, um, you know, if you ask any 
child out there where they want to go for food it's going to be something like mcdonald's you know a happy meal um and so although our genetic uh, footprint hasn't changed over the last you know few hundred years in, in our case um society has changed so it's it's all about epigenetics how that interaction between you know the our, our, what our genes so our genes are loading the gun society and the environment are pulling the trigger in terms of morbid obesity so we can just predict over the next few years we can see the increasing rates of morbid obesity in in in, in youngsters that's only going to get worse now i'm not suggesting that we should be taking eight-year-old children out of school and performing you know sleep gastrectomies on them but we've got to make some changes at the coal face because it's going to be an ex- extremely expensive disease to, to treat. And what changes would you make then? Well, I think, you know, we've had uh, novel um, sort of uh, approaches in terms of the sugar tax and whatnot. But you say if you increase, um, you know, the taxes on, on sugary um, uh, foodstuffs, that's a tax on, on, on low-income families. And I think that that's um, certainly the case. You know, it has to start really with, with education, and I don't mean so much education in school. My experience of, of, of my children being in junior and secondary school is that there's a lot of education there about what constitutes a healthy meal. Um, but it's difficult, you know, over... You know, you look at the cost of living these days where you don't... If you have a sort of nuclear family with two parents... Both those parents will generally be in work because of the the cost of you know day to day living. So you don't have the situation where you've got one parent at home who's you know buying healthy food, constructing a healthy meal in the evening. It's far easier just to come home, put something in the microwave, or to pick something up in a, in a takeaway. So um, it's a difficult problem to solve, and it's not within the um, it's not within the medical community to solve that problem. That needs to start at a political level. Mm. And what would you like to see those political um, figures doing? Is this is this more of a public health issue? Very, yeah, absolutely public health issue. But you know what we we need a strong leadership from the medical profession, particularly public health, to uh, engage with the politicians and start to make some significant you know uh, decisions at government level that's going to affect change. And talking of the government, um, as a sort of Royal College of Surgeon, you know, member and, and leader, what's your opinion on the government at the moment? Are you sort of happy to see them in, in, in both in terms of for surgery and also for what we just talked about, this uh, sort of obesity problem? Yeah, it's, it's, it's as you know, I, I work in Wales. So in terms of healthcare, we're devolved. So we have a Labour administration in the Senev. But um, the, all the money uh, in terms of, of funding comes from the Westminster government. So there's always going to be that sort of difficult sort of setup. Coming through the pandemic, um, we are waiting lists have increased significantly. I'm not suggesting in 2018 everything was, was, was rosy because our waiting lists were increasing then. But we currently have about one in four people in Wales on some form of waiting list. Um, that is a significant burden. And, you know, the way we're going to get on top of that, the major drivers from the Royal College of Surgeons, some very um, uh, strategies that we need to, in, in terms of how we deliver the health service or healthcare rather, is that we need to separate the emergency and scheduled care. The problem that we have uh, in a number of units in, in, in Wales is that we have emergency patients coming into the same hospital that where we're trying to get elective patients in for their planned, planned care. Because of the burden of the emergency workload, 
the uh, available beds for the elective um, patients are usurped by by these emergency patients, and we unfortunately we're in the situation then where we, we we can't get patients in to operate on them. So we need to separate out those those two things. And that's a major major strategy change, and there are some health boards in Wales that have been able to do that. And we can look at how they performed during the COVID pandemic, particularly in the in the east of southeast of Wales. Those uh, those sort of units have done very well. So that's a major policy change that, that we we need to make in Wales because you know, one in four people in Wales waiting for some form of uh, treatment or investigation. That's a, a huge undertaking to get on top of that. Yeah, because I've heard about these surgical hubs that are yeah. going to be created. Can you expand on, on those? Yeah, so a surgical hub is is an elective hub that doesn't have any emergency or um, you know unscheduled patients coming into into the unit. So you have, in essence, ring fencing of beds. Right now, to suggest that we're going to have to build you know twelve or fifteen surgical hubs in Wales, that's that's not going to happen. Um, they've got approximately ninety surgical hubs at the moment or elective hubs in England at the moment what I think we need to do in Wales is to take a phased approach so we need to repurpose some hospitals you know and identify them as sort of hub um, uh, units where we don't have emergency patients coming in if we can identify those there may need to be uh, you know new builds I accept that but until we can be confident that for example say tomorrow if I've got an operating list if I can't be confident that I'm getting four or five patients into hospital for an operation that's a complete waste of resource and it's not just myself it's it's all the staff I work with um, and clearly if you know if you've got five patients coming in for an operation tomorrow if you rock if I rock up tomorrow morning, so there's no beds yeah. we're not going to make any progress at all the surgical hubs you know represent a change or hopefully an improvement in the NHS We've got junior doctors planning to go on strike, nurses that have been on strike. What's your opinion of the NHS at the moment? It's been a difficult time for the last few years. Obviously, um, you know, there's an imbalance between capacity and demand. The demand is there and it's growing, uh, it's increasing uh, rapidly. Um, but I can understand, I can understand why um, junior doctors and nursing staff are, 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 are striking. You know, I was speaking to some nurses on my uh, surgical decision making unit a few weeks ago and what they were um, talking about one of our, uh, our, our more junior nurses who lives in Carmarthen so it's about 20 miles away from Swansea she her, um, she rents her accommodation uh, she told me how much money she's taking home a month she's got a, a, a teenager at home with her I can't understand how she can afford to live um, and I, you know she wasn't emotional about it but you know I can understand when you've got nursing staff who've taken a 20% reduction in real terms in the last well since 2008 uh, junior doctors have seen a 25% reduction in their take-home pay consultants have seen about a 30% reduction in their take-home pay uh, and that's biting you know we had the nursing the first of the nursing stri strikes last week there's about 250 people outside Morrison Hospital striking not so much for money nobody would go into medicine or nursing to make money um, but in terms of working conditions you know we struggle to staff nursing rotors we struggle to staff uh, medical rotors uh, at the moment and it it, it is difficult but I, I think you know we need to be we need to take these things seriously because if if you've got nurses junior doctors uh, you've got the railway workers the ambulance drivers striking at the moment you know, we've got to fix this problem. It's not for us to fix it. I'm afraid it's a political thing.
Absolutely. You're the Director of Wales um, for the Royal College of Surgeons of England. What does that role involve? So I was appointed Director in, in Wales for the Royal College of Surgeons of England earlier this year, and essentially I'm an advocate for, for the Royal College, and I, I, I attempt to sort of promote the practice of surgery. Um, so we, we hold a lot of um, educational events, few of which you, you've been to. We have um, uh, special skills laboratories at the college. We have you know, an, an extremely uh, good uh, library uh, facilities in, in the college. And essentially what it's all about is, is promoting the career in surgery. And does it annoy you that you're the director for Wales of what is um, called the Royal College of Surgeons of England? No, no. I mean, there, there has many years ago there was there was suggestion that we could develop a Royal College of Surgeons of, of Wales, but I think the Royal College of Surgeons of England is is a five star brand, gold plated. Um, it's not uh, England only. You know, we've, I think we've got about forty thousand members. Um, throughout the world so you've got many people who are practicing all over the world who hold the fellowship of the Royal College of Surgeons of England it doesn't from my point of view it doesn't really matter where it's based provided it offers everything for, for everybody sure and are you looking to work your way continually up in the in the RCS it, it, it depends what what happens um, you know see how things progress I, I absolutely love this job you know it's 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 been a, a real um, pleasure to be representing the Royal College of Surgeons of England. Um, we have uh, regular meetings with, with, with cross-party politicians here in, in Cardiff. Um, and having the ability to possibly affect policy change is quite exciting. So I don't know how things are going to pan out over, over, over the, the next few years for me. Certainly if I had the opportunity of progressing within the college, I, I, I you know... I, I jump at it. What would you like for your sort of legacy, or is there anything, any particular change that you'd be like? Yes, I, I did this, uh, you know, and that's the sort of effect that I have. I, I, I'm not, I'm not looking to, to develop any sort of legacy. Yeah. All, I, all I want to do is that um, I want to, I'd like to see that um, we are future-proofing surgery. Is that we are bringing enthusiastic young people fr from across the board. Um, to hopefully pursue a career in surgery. You know, we've got a big um, drive at the moment in terms of equality and diversity. You know, I work in a large surgical unit in Swansea. We only appointed our first female surgeon about two years ago. Um, so I would like to see it in a, a more fair um, career. Um, so there's no legacy. I just, I just want to keep on doing what, what I'm doing and, and, and supporting the college. Absolutely, and you mentioned um, sort of fairness there. Were you involved in the RCS when the, the Kennedy report came out, and did you sort of what was your thoughts when you read that? It, it, well, I, I, I've certainly read parts of the Kennedy report, um, and I, I actually find it quite staggering uh, some of the um, some of the things that were highlighted there. There's been a lot written up about um, how can I say not sexual abuse, but some of the practices of of, of some people um, really. You know, the, the, the hairs on the back of my neck stood up, really. Um, it is a problem. Some of the things I read in the Kennedy report made the hairs on the back of my neck stand up, but, but I've never been subject to any form of, of, of discrimination myself. That doesn't mean it hasn't existed for, for, for a number of my colleagues. I will not tolerate any behaviour like that whatsoever. Um, but I think it was, it was a stark reminder that these things go on and they have to be addressed.
Is there any sort of particular memory in your surgical career of a particular surgery or case which you're sort of most proud of or something where it, it, it really just uh, went very well? Well, I'd like to think there's quite a few of those, but it, it's it's not a case of where I go home thinking I've done well today. Um, you've got to remember that although we are, you know, surgeons, we work very much as part of a team and it's pulling that sort of that team mentality when when you when you function well as a team i don't know maybe i've finished a, a a run of on calls or something and things have gone particularly well you'll we will all remember when things haven't gone well and there, there'll be three or four cases that i can remember particularly well um that not so much i regretted but we could have we could have done better perhaps i could have done better but you know the the, the vast majority of time that we go into the hospital provided we function as as part of a team all with the same sort of same sort of ethos and things go well you know i'm i'm pretty happy i'm pretty proud of that how do you let the times where it does go wrong and you think oh, i could have done this i could have done that not affect you i think i would be lying if i said it, it doesn't affect me um the most important thing is that we learn from those because we, we, we all make mistakes you know we, 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 none of us are perfect and there will be things where you know perhaps I haven't selected a patient correctly or perhaps I haven't performed the procedure you know as, as I normally do um, it, it does affect you the important thing is that you know we have a duty of candor we need to be completely honest completely honest with a patient first and foremost and we have to learn from that because you know learning is all about a collection of mistakes where <laughs> things have, have gone wrong but you've You've you you know you've adjusted things and changed things, and hopefully that won't won't happen again. But there you know we all carry with us you know stories of when things haven't gone as well as they should have done. Sure, and and before we end today, can you leave us with one particular story of a, of a particular patient that you carry with you for either good or, or bad reasons? Yes, I can. Um, obviously, mentioning no names, uh, I hadn't been a consultant long. Um, I was uh, performing a list of uh, cholecystectomies. So I was taking laparoscopic cholecystectomies, taking gallbladders out of a number of patients in, in Singleton Hospital. And um, the, the, the list went very well. I went home like I normally do, came back in the following day. Um, I think two of the patients had gone home the same day, two had been kept overnight. I go into the Singleton Hospital the following morning and I said, uh, where's Mrs. So-and-so? Oh, she's on the intensive care unit. I thought, well, she only had her, uh, you know, her gallbladder taken out yesterday. Anyway, um, she developed pancreatitis, okay, which is a recognised complication of, of cholecystectomy, and we transferred her to to, to, to Morrison Hospital. Um, she stayed on ITU for for a few days, and then she started uh, discharging some small bowel content through her umbilicus, umbilical port, and so what had happened was. When we had closed um, the umbilical port, we obviously caught a little bit of small bowel in the suture and she developed a fistula. And we had to take it back to theatre and debride her abdominal wall. She had a sort of necrotizing fasciitis type uh, picture. And this uh, lady stayed in hospital for about, I think probably six months before we fixed her, her fistula. I still get a Christmas card off her. Every time I went into her room, her husband, lovely gentleman, would always stand up and shake my hand. And it, I mean, this is 12 years ago now, but 
had that lady not come in for a, for her operation on that day, none of this would happen to her. But the the thanks that I received from 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 the lady and her husband and whatnot, I I, I couldn't understand. It was difficult to process at the time, but they would. The husband just said, I, I'm very grateful for you saving my wife's life. And, I, and, I, and I, I couldn't understand. But I've certainly changed my practice now. I'm rather fastidious in, you know, I thought we were at the time. But it's little things like that. You know, we've all got a little collection of them stored in the back of our mind where we, we've learned something. We've learned something from something where something has gone wrong. Um, but I always remember that lady. That's a very touching story. Thank you for sharing that with us. And it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. So thank you very much for coming on today. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Surgical Society podcast, where I was joined by Professor John Barry. Please join me in two weeks' time where I talk to Mr. Gordon, an orthopaedic surgeon who is thought to be the fittest surgeon on planet Earth.